0: Good morning again, Gathering Church. Thanks for tuning in with us. Looking forward to uh, going through the the Word of God together. Um, Just a few weeks ago, we began a new series in the book of Joshua. And uh, we learned in chapter 1 that this whole book is about God and how He is a promise-keeping God. He's faithful to His people. And uh, this morning, we'll be looking at the Israelites entering into the promised land. And uh, we'll be, so go ahead and, and grab your Bible, if you will. And I think it will be a good day to actually have a Bible, uh, whether it's physical or a digital Bible, and we'll be looking through the text together. We're actually going to be looking at Joshua chapter 3, Joshua chapter 4, and the first part of Joshua chapter 5. Uh, so we've got a lot of text to go through and not a whole lot of time to do it. Uh, I think we could have probably preached a sermon out of each of these different uh, segments today. But we're going to try to uh, move through them all in a quick uh, fashion this morning. Um, so as we look through these passages and we reflect on a God who is faithful to carry out his promises, I have three different points. Uh, point one will be God's wonders among his people. Point two will be God's acts remembered. And point three is God's faithfulness precedes our own. So point one, God's wonders among his people Let's read the first part of Joshua chapter three. This is verses one through six. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet, There shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So we see in these first six verses that Joshua is preparing the people for God to act. In chapter one, if you remember, Joshua used these officers to go throughout the camp and to command them to prepare for provisions and to get ready to cross over. And now he's using these officers again to kind of go throughout the camp and to share messages with them about what is to come. And I think it's easy to forget about the scale of the Israelite camp Uh, when we think about their actual numbers of people. So in the the book of Numbers, uh, 2651, it tells us that there were just over 600,000 men that were over the age of 20. So it's probably safe to assume based on that number that there were 2 million or maybe a little more individuals throughout the whole whole camp. Um, In verse 3, you can see a call for immediate obedience it says, as soon as you see the ark. And there's not a whole lot of further instructions at this point about what exactly is going to happen. And this kind of builds suspense as we go throughout chapter one to the build-up at the end. Um, Joshua just has the officers tell the people this one command, which is to follow the ark. So if you look at verse four, you can see Joshua wants the people to keep a distance from the ark. He instructs them to keep 2,000 cubits away. That's about equivalent to about 1,000 yards. It's a a very large distance. Um, Some translations like the NIV and the RSV, they seem to imply that this is because of the holiness of the ark. And we do definitely see that theme in several places in Scripture where the ark is holy, not to come near it. um, It actually winds up killing some people uh, because they come too close. But here, this specific instruction about 2,000 cubits, it's not found anywhere else in Scripture. Um, it's not found in a place like Exodus 19, where Moses heads up Mount Sinai in a very um, organized fashion to receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, so it seems like maybe there's a different reason why this 2,000 cubits is instructed from the Lord. And so in the ESV, which we, we just read earlier, the idea of the distance, it's connected specifically to the fact that the Israelites have not been this way before. It may be that God wanted them to stand at a specific distance so that they could observe what he was about to do. He was about to act in a great way. When those priests' feet touch the Jordan River coming up, uh, God is about to work wonders. So in in verse 5, we see Joshua instructs the people. He says... For them to prepare their bodies and their hearts, he says, "Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you." And this word, this idea of wonders, it could also be translated as amazing things. God is about to do amazing things among you. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in Exodus three twenty when Moses he's referring to the, uh, the ten plagues that are about to happen in the land of Egypt. It seems to be a term that's used to denote clearly miraculous works that could only be from the hand of God. So in the idea of consecrating, Joshua is instructing the Israelites to purify themselves so that they can be prepared for God's work in a huge way. There's a lot of laws and procedures outlined in the books of Leviticus and in Exodus For the people to purify themselves, obviously. And as you look at these, uh, the idea also brings about kind of a ceremony, right? Um, A lot of order and structure. And in many ways, this crossing of the Jordan that we're about to read has the same kind of structure. Uh, It has a lot of pomp and uh, ceremonial activities. And there's three different groups that are acting in the midst of the ceremony. There's the priests who are actually carrying the Ark of the Covenant There's 12 men that are chosen, and then there's the people themselves who are are doing the crossing. So let's look at this next section, uh, verses 7 through 13, and we can see these three groups in more detail. This is Joshua 3, 7 through 13. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the ark of the covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold." So here we see the Lord's plan further outlined to Joshua when he speaks to him, and then Joshua turns around and speaks to the people. In verse seven, we see the first stated reason for this miracle. God says that he's about to exalt Joshua in the sight of all of Israel. In chapter one, we saw the importance of Moses and his leadership of the Israelites, and we saw how the Israelites desired for Joshua to be like Moses. They wanted God to be with Joshua just as God was with Moses. The people had followed Moses faithfully for 40 years throughout the wilderness. They had been led out of Egypt. And now at this crucial moment when the people are about to cross over into the land, they have a new leader. It's probably a little dissettling, right? They're about to head into this land and possess it. And God assures Joshua in the midst of all this transition. And God tells Joshua, I will be with you. This language of with Joshua is a lot more intimate than what we saw back in verse 5. He said, the Lord will do wonders among you. Even in verse 10, we see that the living God is among you. God is establishing Joshua as this leader firmly in the people's minds. As of yet, the people don't know what's going to happen. They just know that they've been instructed to follow the ark But now Joshua hears from the Lord and he shares this with the people, which begins to establish his leadership and the fact that he has a relationship with God where he can hear his voice and he can follow him. This happens very specifically in verse 9, where Joshua says, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord. And then in verse 10, he goes on to tell what the Lord has said, and he doesn't exalt himself. He doesn't talk about how he's a great leader that they can follow and how he is exalted in the sight of Israel. No, he turns around and he talks about the Lord, and he says that they can trust him. He says, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you. And then he says, he will without fail drive out the Canaanites. The logic is if God can cause the Jordan River to stand up in a big heap before them, then surely he can drive out the people from the land of Canaan. It's the same thing that Paul does when we read Romans 8.32. Love this verse. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? So when we see God's faithfulness in some kind of huge way, we can know that that is a sign. It's like a a marker of his future faithfulness, and it can give us, boost our faith. In verse 10, it says, the people will know the living God is among them. Joshua describes God as as active and involved in their actions. And in verse 11, he refers to the ark as the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. So the focus in this entire buildup, it's not necessarily on Joshua as a great leader, but rather it's on the power of God. The ark is a symbol of God's power and his presence, and God's miraculous actions are about to be on display for all to see. And then uh, before we transition here, verse 12, uh, Joshua has people selected from each tribe of Israel, and there's not clarity about what these people are going to do yet and what they're going to be used for. The crossing hasn't even happened yet, but Joshua is already Preparing, and he knows what's about to happen. He's prepared to create a memorial, which we'll see in chapter 4. So look at verses uh, 14 through 17 now. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan." So here we see the, the actual crossing of the Jordan River. Uh, just a few things to note here. Uh, the end of verse 15, it describes how the Jordan River was overflowing in the harvest time. And this was the, the barley harvest, apparently, in uh, the, the April month. And uh, it's as if God wanted to show off his great power by planning the crossing for this time of year. Uh, it was overflowing. It was probably the worst time of the year to cross. In addition, this location where they crossed, it was not the optimal spot to cross the Jordan River. Uh, There certainly were more ideal places that were maybe closer to the city of Adam that they talk about. Uh, Why did God select this spot for the people to cross over? Uh, Maybe the people of Jericho would have been guarding the river in other places where it was easier to cross. Uh, Maybe he simply wanted to show them that they were utterly dependent on his hand, Uh, Whatever the reason, the author goes out of the way to show and to designate where this occurred on the Jordan River and to show the conditions and how they would have been unable to cross without God's supernatural power. Uh, Look at verse 16. It says, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. I think the city of Adam was, was miles away, and so the, the people of Israel remember God had commanded them to stand at a specific place, and they're observing then as the waters stand up in this giant heap um, far in the distance. So there was no questioning as they observed this from the distance and the place where God had set them that God's hand was at work, and God was the one who was holding these waters back in the sky. So one point of application as we think about this first chapter, Joshua had the people consecrate themselves. He had them prepare their hearts for God's work. And he made sure that they were in the right place to see God at work. Through Jesus, we know that he has already completed everything we need for life and godliness. However, God is still at work among us. He's still active in our lives. Through the Holy Spirit, he is with us just as he was with Joshua. Are we complacent when we prepare for God to work? When we think about worshiping God, do we approach him haphazardly? Do we, or do we consecrate ourselves? Do we expect that God will work wonders among us? When we have needs and concerns in our lives, do we just pray haphazardly like we're wishing upon a star? Or do we pray in expectancy, knowing that God longs to hear us. He longs to act in our lives. Another question, are we, are we placing ourselves physically where we need to be to worship God? Are we placing ourselves in postures where we can observe God's work? Are we seeking God regarding the physical places that he would have us go or to be? The Israelites didn't know the exact method of their crossing when they set out. They didn't know where they were headed in the land exactly. But they did know where God wanted them to be at that moment to follow him. Are you taking the first step in following God where he's commanded, even if you don't know all the steps along the way? Let's look at point number two uh, in chapter four. This is God's acts remembered. This is Joshua four. We're going to read verses one through 10 to start off. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Now the timing of these events uh, in these verses, it's the topic of a lot of scholarly debate. Um, Essentially stepping back, it seems like the Israelites are crossing the Jordan at the end of chapter three, and then all of a sudden the memorial stones event happens And then as we look at verse 11 here in a moment, they finish crossing. According to uh, commentator Richard Hess, perhaps a better translation of this initial phrase that says, when all the nation had finished would be as the nation was finishing crossing. The priests are still standing in the midst of the Jordan, kind of waiting on all these two million people to go through. And uh, the Lord then commands Joshua to take these 12 men who he's chosen And to have each of them bring up a dry stone onto the the bank of the Jordan River. Uh, So Joshua then carefully instructs the men, telling them in verse six the reason why they are doing this, so that when their children ask about the stones, they can tell what the Lord did. And this is the same kind of language that Moses uses in Exodus twelve when he's establishing the Passover. Um, Moses instructs them it's before the 10th plague has actually even happened. They're just preparing for it. And he's instructing about how the Passover and all the details of the Passover and how it will be celebrated every year because of remembering the Lord's faithfulness. Uh, Joshua commands the people and they all obey the Lord's command. And that's the repetition that we see in verse 8 and 9 when they carry out the same event. And look at verse 10, uh, just a, a very interesting note here. Uh, The people obey God by obeying Joshua. But then it says that Joshua is obeying the Lord by obeying Moses and all that Moses taught him. And Moses is dead, uh, but it's, it's profound to see that he is obeying Moses still. And the reason for these stones, what Joshua has said, is that future generations will know the power of Yahweh and they will obey him. And we see that played out in this verse 10 in reverse. It's like an example of why it's important to carefully pass on the faith and to follow in all the ways that you have been instructed in the Lord. The faithful example of others results in obedience that we see here. And it's through their obedience that they leave behind an example for others to follow. So let's look at the next verse, uh, Joshua 4. Look at uh, middle of verse 10 through 18. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses." All the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people finished their crossing here. And we're reminded the reason that they're crossing over, which is to go to war. Um, These people that are from the other side of the Jordan, uh, the the tribe of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, their people are going to stay there and live there permanently. But these men are crossing over and they're already armed for battle. They're ready to fight. And we see in verse 14 that, that God has delivered on his promise that he will exalt Joshua before all of Israel. And now uh, in verse 18, we see the Jordan River. It returns to its normal flow and its overflowing state at this time of the year immediately when the priests step up on the riverbank. Again, we see just the certainty of the miracle of God in the timing of this flow resuming. So, Let's keep on moving. Joshua 4, verses 19 through 24. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal, on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. In verse 19, it mentions a very specific date. It says the first month and the tenth day. And there's two reasons for this. First, uh, this event was especially meaningful, clearly, in that the Israelites have been working toward crossing this land for 40 years uh, since they left Egypt. And moreover, it really delivers on this specific promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Uh, He said in, in Genesis 15, 13 through 16, "'The Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs "'and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. "'But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, "'and afterward they will come out with great possessions.'" As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So this moment has been anticipated for not just 40 years, but literally hundreds of years and generations. This moment's filled with a lot of great importance, and so marking it in a specific time makes sense. Second reason why it's marked is that it's four days before the Passover preparations are to begin. Um, In Exodus chapter 12, Moses instructs the people that they will keep the Passover on the 14th day of the month. And so they're passing over on the 10th day, and the Passover is on the 14th. The people are about to celebrate the Passover just a few days after they've crossed the Jordan River. And this will be yet another memorial to remember God's faithfulness to rescue his people. It's like God is giving the Israelites reminder after reminder to assure them that he will give them this land and that he will deliver on his promises to his people. They have no need to be afraid. They should be strong and courageous, right? God's great acts are to be remembered so that we can have confidence in his faithfulness in the future. Uh, In verse 20, Joshua sets up the 12 stone memorial. And then he gives a speech before all the people. Um, earlier, when he had been instructing about the stones and what they meant, he was just instructing the 12 men. Now he's instructing all of the people. And he says he specifically mentions the Red Sea crossing in verse 23, which further shows this transition from Moses to Joshua. And it reminds the people of his faithfulness in the past. Uh, the additional explanation he gives here about the stones that he didn't give to the 12 men We can see in verse 24, he says that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So the stones are for Israel and for Israel's children to fear the Lord and to obey him always to worship him only. But they're also for the other peoples of the earth so that they can remember the mighty works of Yahweh and stand in fear. A quick word of application. Are you looking at the memorial stones of the Christian faith? that have been left for you as we sit here today in the the year of 2020. There's so many memorials in following Jesus that have been left along the way by the apostles and those who have gone before us in the faith. Are we looking to those markers to help us remember God's faithfulness? Are we being careful to obey all that they have instructed us through the Bible and throughout history, just as the people were careful to obey Joshua and Joshua was careful to obey Moses? Also, are we looking forward? What memorials do you have in your life that you will point you and your children after you to the Lord? What legacy are you leaving behind in regard to your faith? Are there times in your life where the Lord has already clearly intervened and rescued you or provided for you? Have you shared these things with those that you love? Do you have a way of passing these stories forward to those who you love? Let's uh, look at point number three now and finish up. This is God's faithfulness precedes our own. Uh, Let's look at Joshua 5 verses one through nine. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel at that time. The Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, Yet all of the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. At the end of chapter 4, we saw that these 12 stones as a memorial would remind all the people of the earth that the Lord is mighty. And here in verse 1, we see it doing exactly that. Um, The people are standing in fear of Israel's God. The Canaanites' hearts melted, it says. And this works out pretty providentially because we see in verse 8, after the men are circumcised, they obviously need some time to heal. And so the the nations being afraid, keeps them from coming and attacking them while they're healing. Uh, In verse 3, Joshua circumcises the men. In the wilderness, it says they weren't circumcised at all, or at least maybe not correctly. Uh, Circumcision was the mark of the covenant, and so it's appropriate that the Israelites, as they take possession of the land, that they are marked as the people of God. Uh, Genesis 17, 14 says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And we see uh, several times here in these verses, it's pretty repetitive, verses five through seven, there's this contrast between the old circumcised generation and this new uncircumcised generation. Um, An interesting detail is in verse six. It says, the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us. It's kind of this double swearing from the Lord, right? Um, here's Hebrews 3, 17 through 19. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So it's the unbelief of the previous generation that prevented them from moving forward and entering this land But now, in the promised land, we see that God is swearing in apparently contradictory ways in the moment. Now it's turned out that he was just and faithful all along. The Lord is faithful even when we are unfaithful. He's just and he fulfills things in his own time. Despite the unbelief of some, he is able to fulfill his promises to his people. There's clearly some irony in the fact that the Lord has delivered on his promise already, To these uncircumcised ones who have not yet been faithful in being circumcised. God's faithfulness is not contingent on our deeds or our faithfulness. They didn't have to pause before they crossed the Jordan River to circumcise themselves and then cross. Think about it. They're already literally in the promised land here. When they're being circumcised. God is the one who's the actor. He is the one who delivers on his promise first. And the people simply respond in worship and obedience. And in verse 9, God tells Joshua that he is rolling away the reproach of Egypt. He's clearly rescued them out of Egypt. And uh, he's taken away the shame that comes with that. This name of Gilgal, you can probably see in a footnote in your Bible. It says that it sounds like the Hebrew for to roll. And God is the one who who does this and accomplishes this because of His covenant and because of His people and His love for them. He is the one who removes their sin. He prepares them to celebrate the Passover, He prepares them to possess the land, and the people didn't accomplish this through their circumcision they they just obeyed, and the act signified what had already been done by God, so the application here. God loved us while we were yet sinners, and that Christ died for us. Are there places in your life where you're trying to take the credit for God's work? just encourage you to repent, to recognize God's faithfulness apart from your actions, and to choose and follow in gratitude. Our salvation and our life in Christ is by grace alone. Last section here, Joshua 5 verses 10 through 12. Uh, which again is a memorial to God's faithfulness, another reminder of deliverance. And then in verse 11, they enjoy the produce of the land for the first time. They literally taste and see that the Lord is good, and they enjoy the God's rich provision and blessings in the promised land. Uh, And then we see in verse 12 that the manna ceased. And the manna was provided all the way back in Exodus 16, right after the people crossed the Red Sea. They had been gathering up this white, flaky, bread-like substance from the ground after it rained down, and they were eating it every day for the past 40 years. There were probably loads of people in this group who had grown up only eating manna, and they were, they were probably sick of manna, uh, which made this blessing of the real produce a lot more visceral. Uh, on the other hand, the people no longer had this tangible reminder of God's direct provision for them every day. However, I would say that the promised land obviously was a much greater and richer blessing from God. Um, If the people would always remain grateful, which of course they didn't, uh, it would serve as a sign that God provides for them. But after this initial blessing, as many of us do, we get very complacent and comfortable and used to God's blessing in our life. The two final points of application here, how often do we wish for a miracle from God when the blessing that we already have is right in front of us? God has richly blessed us in so many ways, but in our greed, in our selfishness, and our complacency, we tend to miss it. We want a manna raining down when we have a rich bounty of blessings right in front of us. Uh, the crowd that followed Jesus, if you remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, they wanted the same thing. They were missing Jesus for who he was because they wanted something else. Uh, we see this in John 6. This is John six twenty-five to 35. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. is the bread of life. He is the fulfillment of all Israel's promises. The promised land was about establishing a people who would bring forth the promised one. He is our memorial stone. He's the cornerstone that we can build our life on and we can look to as we take communion, as we remember his work on our behalf to die for our sins on the cross and to rise again. He is the perfect bread from heaven. He's better than manna. He's better than anything the promised land could even bring. He has rolled away our reproach for us. He's loved us before we even thought to love him. If you've never turned and put your trust and faith in Christ for all your life, for this life and the next, I encourage you to do so today. If you're a believer, my encouragement today is not to crave the manna of this life. Crave Jesus, the bread of heaven. The manna of this life will turn to worms and rot but Jesus will stand forever. He will satisfy you in every way. Let's pray together.